everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio-Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. So today's guest is Nicole Johnson Pendergrass, and I am super excited. I have known Nicole for years. Uh, I am excited to get her on. She's going to bust all the myths that are associated with certified public accountants. Uh, So (laughs) stay tuned. Uh, Nicole is the Director of Operations at Hafer Certified Public Accountants and Consultants. She's got offices in Palm Beach, Naples, Miami, and Orlando, Florida, She's a member of the Florida Institute of Certified Public Accountants, or FICPA. She served on the Common Interest Realty Associations Committee and teaches various accounting seminars for CIRA managers and board members. Nicole has always been active in community activities, particularly those that support underprivileged children, such as the Voices for Children of Palm Beach County organization. She's also served as the campaign manager for the 2008 Women of the Year campaign for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Uh, On a separate note, I can tell you she hosts one of the most fabulous Christmas parties I've ever been to. (laughs) (laughs) She had Santa come. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that later. But but Nicole, welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. I do want to say I've known you for years, and I don't think I've ever asked you where you grew up and where you were born. Yes, I'm originally from New Jersey. I moved down here specifically for this job. I um, got recruited by Mr. Hafer, and I came down here when I was 28. So, best decision I ever made. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hop right into it because this is an audio, and, and you don't have the benefit of seeing Nicole, but she is beautiful, a beautiful blonde <laughs> powerhouse. And how did you came down at 28? How did that work against you in terms of getting clients, or how, or did it work for you? It actually worked for me. I I love accounting. And when I was working up in New Jersey, it was the best thing I ever decided to do was go into accounting, graduating from college. And then when I got recruited by Mr. Hafer, I came down here and I love this industry. I love meeting so many different people. Most accountants like to be behind the desk. I don't. I like to be out there. I love my work, but I love the board members. I love all the different people I meet, the attorneys, the insurance agents. I just, every day I wake up and I love what I do. You certainly don't fit the mold because you're right. Most people think about accountants and they think introverts, people who relate more to numbers than to other people. But I mean, I remember the first time I met you at a panel and I said, wow, that's the CPA. I'm impressed. I felt the same way about you. That's why I was like, oh, my God, she's an attorney with personality. A mutual admiration society. So let's jump right into it. A lot of the questions we get, you know, we're dealing with community associations, and the vast majority are not-for-profit corporations, right? But these communities do have incidental revenue sources. Um, That can include revenue coming in from a rooftop cell phone, a a lease for for rooftop cell towers. It can be um, rent coming in from a home or a unit that the association owns. It can be uh, transfer fees. How do you as an accountant, I know that a lot of times boards get confused and say, well, not-for-profit, we're not supposed to have this additional income. What are the tax implications of that additional income? And does it, jeopardize, great, does it jeopardize their not-for-profit status, too? That's a great question. A lot of it came up last year, too, through the COVID. People were calling us, what are we? What are we, our status with the IRS? So the first thing is that, yes, in the state of Florida, you're not for-profit in, for that. But for the IRS purposes, you are a profit organization. So it depends on the association also. Some of them are cooperatives which they are really an 1120. They are a corporate return. They file like a regular corporation. 
Homeowners Association and condominiums, I would say probably 95% of them fall under the 1120H, Homeowners Association tax return. It is a profit organization with the IRS. However, they do have something called a Section 528, which makes them exempt from certain income maintenance fees, reserves, anything capital, anything that comes from the members is exempt. So it's not taxable. But the other things you brought up are perfect examples of what is potentially taxable. We have associations that have antenna roofs, that they actually get income from cable companies. That is potentially taxable. Um, Other types of revenue, laundry income, Anything that is not actually coming from the members is something that is potentially taxable. What we try to do is offset that with expenses, or we came up with some creative ways in the past. For example, we had an association that sold basically in an easement, and they came, they received money from a third party. Well, we said, isn't that really capital to the association? They're giving it back to their members and using it for capital. So as long as that's being done and the proper way the attorneys set up how they do it, they can actually be where it's not a taxable event. So associations really need to sit down with their professionals and get advice on how to do it. And can they get ways of not paying tax? Yeah, I imagine that comes up too when they, you know, I have some communities, Nicole, where they've acquired additional parcels of land. Maybe they've used it for overflow parking over the years. And then over time, they say, we want to, we want to sell this parcel. So I imagine that's also a taxable event. And I, listen, I'm an attorney. I always say, speak to your accounting professional. (laughs) I'm very much in favor of staying in your lane when it comes to that. And me too. And we would be in that situation. We would look at it. Is it really capital? But then the ways that it has to be done, we have to bring the attorneys in because I'm the same way you are there. We can only go to the accounting aspect of it when they start getting into, well, can we legally do this? We always bring in our attorneys because we are not attorneys. (laughs) Very smart. So I have to ask you, you know, uh, the Florida legislative session in Florida, we have a 60 day session. I always say, thank goodness, because imagine what could happen if they were seated year round. Um, This was a particularly active year this year. We were monitoring at our firm uh, more than two dozen bills. And I want to ask you about one particular bill. And I think you know which bill this is. This was the bill that would have allowed uh, associations to invest their operating and reserve funds through the use of a financial advisor. Now, that bill didn't pass, and we were opposed to it. I I, I am assuming that FIPPO FIPPO was opposed to it as well. But um, what did you make of that, that uh, they could invest these funds? I mean, inconceivably, they could lose these funds. I was terrified. I feel the same way you do. First, what I tell my boards is, this isn't your money. This is everybody else's money. Personally, if you choose to invest in something that's high risk, personally, you're fine. But when you're investing other people's money, you should never be taking risk. Even in our audits, we write things up that if they're trying, if they're over FDIC, which isn't even a high risk of investing on the stocks, but we write it up in the audits. I was terrified it was going to pass because these boards, I had a call Interesting you say that about three weeks ago when the board said, if this does pass or something, we're going to take all of our reserve money and invest in Bitcoin. Oh, my Lord. I almost fell to the ground. I said, (laughs) do you know what kind of risk you're taking? Well, the people are getting great returns. I said, first of all, you have nothing tangible. You now you need the roof done or you need something done. These monies are at a risk. And if you lose everything, everything people put in their principal now we're going to come to you as the board. And my question to you is, you need to get the attorneys and the insurance involved. Are you protected? 
as a board member, investing in something that's high risk. So I'm very grateful that it did not pass. I hope that it doesn't even come back around in a few years because we always recommend, yes, there's nothing wrong with investing in low risk, CDs, CEDARS program, insured savings accounts, things that, yes, the interest is low, but you're not out there trying to make big interest. You're trying to sustain the association financially secure. You know, I wonder sometimes what gets into the heads of these legislators who, who who sponsor some of this legislation, because arguably, like you said, losing, putting those funds at risks at risk means they can be lost, which also means it runs counter to the mandate of the membership. If the membership has said, look, we want to partially fund reserves this year in this amount and you lose now you've got, you've run counter to the membership mandate to fund those reserves. So I don't know. I don't know whether or not the bill sponsors were maybe financial advisors. Who knows? But I, but I, but I, but I know this. I know that a, a board can be criticized for, for something as mundane as, you know, holding the board meeting on a Tuesday night as opposed to a Wednesday night. Can you imagine the kind of pushback depending on where they would invest these funds. So I, I'm right with you. I'm glad the bill passed. I do hope that, you know, legislators in every state need to recognize that people living in these, these shared ownership communities typically represent a very significant percentage of their population. So reach out to the people in this industry and actually get some, some input before crafting legislation that can really have a, you know, create an upheaval. Absolutely. And I do see where sometimes there are people that in these communities are trying to get on the board because they are financial advisors. They see a lot of this money. You know, some associations have millions of dollars in reserves and they say, oh, get on the board. And they try to convince them saying, this is a great investment. We're going to make a great return. But that's not the case. It's high risk that you might be in a great market right now. Three months down the road, the stocks go down and you've lost principal. So it's not a good investment in the sense that it's not your money. So perfect segue. So private residential communities, they can't function without the assessment stream that funds their essential services. This is why realistic operating budgets and adequate reserve funding are so crucial to a community's long-term success. But in my experience, a lot of communities don't get this right. Um, for years, we've seen boards and members basically vote to waive the reserves year after year. Eventually, they'll have to pay the piper, right? Um, I guess I would say to you, ask you, Nicole, what would you tell a community during the planning stages to help them get their, their operating budget correct and their reserve funding proper properly done? It's a great question. And too many associations aren't financially solvent. They think they are. And they say, well, we'll just special assess down the road. Well, you don't know what's coming down the road. You don't know if we get in a bad situation like COVID last year. For years, I've been telling my associations, you need a contingency in the operating. You definitely need to have something there if something comes up unexpected. And they've told me for years, it'll never happen. What's going to come up? Well, last year was the worst thing that could have happened. And it did set them in that situation of, you know, closing down their common areas. If they had a restaurant, closing them down, the gyms, um, not having enough in their contingency or in their fund balance to sustain those things they had to do by, you know, sanitizing more, hiring more staff. So I tell them you really need to, especially if you're a new community, it's the perfect time to build up that fund balance. And then the reserve side, it's, it's such a battle out there with associations. And I think I'm getting more and more 
educating them more on the side of why they need them. And I hear too many times from people that, well, I won't live here when we need to do the roof or you're not paying it for when it's coming due. You're paying for the time you're living there. And I think people fail to realize when they get into a condominium living versus a homeowner, not even a homeowner's association, but your own home, that you're putting away for that roof when it comes due. You're not saying when it comes due, oh, I need to make sure I have the 10,000 at that point. You're saving for it. You're saving for that paving that needs to be done and you're paying your portion. And, you know, they say it doesn't come up, but I see it in a lot of associations that the ones that have that fully funding reserves or even partially funding, people want to live in those communities more because they say I'm less likely to have a 20 or $30,000 assessment. So I always say when boards are starting their budget is looking at from a business standpoint, not from a personal feeling standpoint. Well, I don't want to raise the dues because someone might not be able to afford it. But you have to look at it. How do I run this corporation? Run it financially solve. And if you own your own business, you would be making sure you had reserves set aside for things that happen, especially if you own the building. Treat it like a regular business and you would have different feeling of raising those dues and funding those reserves. Uh, you know, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's about also staying competitive. There are new buildings and new communities going up every other week. Okay. We're seeing a lot of activity around the country in terms of multifamily communities. Um, what makes you competitive? Well, certainly maintaining the, the infrastructure, maintaining the building, maintaining the grounds, but also maintaining it financially. And you're absolutely right. I think our purchasers are getting more and more savvy. I know that if I was looking to, to, to buy a, another home or a vacation home, one of the things I would absolutely be looking at and scrutinizing would be the operating budget and whether or not there were reserves for all the reasons you just said, which is, hey, if they've got fully funded reserves, that means I'm not likely as a new purchaser to get hit with a huge special assessment. Uh, Correct. I, never, I don't know that I ever told you my my origin story in this industry, no. Nicole. But my, I love to hear it. <laughs> my, my origin, and, and and you know my husband Michael. So we were just out of law school, and we were moving into a um, we were moving into a our first condominium. It was actually a townhouse, attached townhomes, but there was a condominium association, and it was. Uh, I, I think I mentioned this story in the in the intro to this podcast. But one of the things is we got hit immediately with a special assessment for the skylights. And then, of course, we found out uh, our son was born and five days later, he was five days old. The skylights just fell in during a horrendous storm, found out that the former uh, board president had absconded with the special assessment fund. So the work was never actually done. So this lets me segue wow. into, into this question, which is sometimes reserves are not funded because people don't, you know, the green banana crowd. I'm not going to be around for the bananas okay. to ripen. I'm not going to be around to enjoy this. But the other the other aspect is sometimes you've got people who are afraid to have extra money lying around because they're afraid that that creates a temptation for theft. So what would you say to kind of assuage those concerns, you know, to say, hey, yeah, we can put certain, you know, we can put certain checks and balances in place where you can have those fully funded reserves and we can create a system where we can detect fraud. Great. And, and that's an interesting story. I never knew that happened to you. That's <laughs> what a great segue into getting into HOA and condo world because it does happen. I mean, fraud is out there. People, you know, especially HOAs and condos, but what I tell my, when I do a lot of associations where I go to board meetings and talk about the financials is the most important part is yes, funding those reserves, putting them aside, but 
electing the right board members and making sure that there are controls in place. And too many communities try to think this is just a mom and pop shop. This is a corporation. You're running millions of dollars through there. There needs to be segregation of duties, oversight. Are you a unit owner? Are you requesting to see the monthly financials? Are they reporting it at a board meeting? Are you making sure that you're looking at the year-end financial report, the review or the audit? I'd want to see that. I'd want to see, are there any recommendations of controls and making sure that's all in place? And a lot of times it's, you know, the self-managed versus the management companies. And a lot of times boards come in and, you know, they say, well, we can do it ourselves. The problem with it is corporations, you have so much as a self-managed property to do. You have to put the controls in place segregation of duties, all the accounting manuals, making sure that you're in compliance with all payroll laws, which payroll has so many guidance with IRS, then the state, and making sure with, you know, talking with your attorneys about, you know, fair, fair acts with all of your employees. Are you doing discrimination? There's so much more involved in a self-managed community and there's more risk. There's a lot more risk in the side of what you're bringing up with fraud. Because if they're a self-managed property and the president's able to do everything and there's no oversight, yes, there could be a situation where a check is issued or they're doing something. There's not as much control in place. Boy, you touched on so many important issues. It's that level of informality that I find when a client comes to me with a legal issue. And and you know what? It works until it doesn't work, right? Until you get sued. And then you realize that you're basically standing on in, in a house of cards because the ground underneath you is not firm because they, they you know, we'll see it with contracts, you know, no overview yes. of the contract signing a million dollar, you know, roof replacement without having it vetted. And then when the roofer walks off the job, there's nothing in there in terms of uh, a warranty, you know, there's no payment or performance bond in place, or if there's a problem with the project, the warranty language is not sufficient, or if there were damages created throughout it, there's not an incidental damages clause. So I do think the level of, of informality in some of these association operations is a huge contributing factor to the problem problems that creep up on them. And I 100% agree with you with the self-managed, um, the self-managed communities. And it's funny, everything I've been wanting to talk to you about, you're like, we're so in sync because that was one of my <laughs> questions, which is what is your, how does your role differ when you're dealing with a community that is professionally managed by one of, you know, a large management company uh, or one that it just has an in their own direct in-house cam. And then one that is completely self-managed, meaning not managed at all. Just the board itself is divvying up. In in the last instance, do you deal mostly with the treasurer? Do you deal with a president? Do you deal with an outside bookkeeper? How does that typically, you know, I deal with treasurers and sometimes I see treasurers who are really involved and they think right. they're, in, they're in there with the budget and they're working on the financial statements and they're working hand in hand. And then I have others where it's just really a name. They just they, they exactly. have the name treasurer and they read off the treasurer's report you know, at the annual meeting, but really they're not involved throughout the year. Well, it's interesting you say that. So we do a mix of self-managed and management companies and our low risk ones are the management companies. Now I'm talking about the high-end professional ones, the ones that have truly the segregation of duties, not the companies that are the mom and pops that the receptionist is the bookkeeper, but you're absolutely right. There are treasurers that their name is on there and we try to do an interview for the audit and we ask the questions and they have no idea what's going on. We ask them if there are two signatures. Well, I don't know. 
well, your signature's on one of the checks. Do you see the invoices before you sign the checks? Well, yes, but then there's one signature on a check. So the, the issue is that there's not enough oversight when they're in the when they're in self-managed. Now there are some self-managed that the treasurer is overseeing everything and he is looking at things. But the difference is we the management companies are truly offering that next level of expertise. When a contract comes through, they are saying it needs to go to the attorneys. You're not signing a million dollar contract and they're giving them the reasons why. And when the self-managed, they're saying, well, we have an attorney that's on the board. He's not a Florida attorney. He doesn't know this industry. You don't want to put a board member where he's the one approving that. We always say these management companies offer that next level. And they deal with so many communities. They know what's happening, the ones that are being sued, the ones that aren't using the professionals. So the guidance there, it's actually taking work off of the board members because the board members now are doing their true job of board of governance. They're overseeing the, the management companies advising, and then they're making the right decisions. So we, and it's interesting you say that about contracts. I can't say enough. We even write in on our control, control letter. If you've not had your attorneys review the contracts, it's a risk. And it's amazing how many that have signed their name on a million dollar contract and never had an attorney look at it. It's just, it blows my mind that I would ever put myself in that situation, knowing that you're putting the association at risk. So I feel that the management companies offer that next level that keeps you really running it like a corporation. You know, you did it to me again, because I was going to say to you, some of my challenges as corporate counsel is when I'm dealing sometimes with a board where we've got the retired PI attorney from New York who, you know, we didn't come to you because Jerry Jerry reviewed the uh, cable contract. Uh, okay. So my question to you is, do you ever run across that with the retired accountant? on the board all the time. So <laughs> I'm a retired CPA and and what's a challenge in that is when we come out with the internal control letter, sometimes they get insulted by it. And I have to ease that and say I'm not I'm not trying to insult you. I'm trying to help you. There are some controls in place that could be better. And then they'll try to come back to me and say, "Well, we're doing it this way. Does this work so we can get it off the letter?" People need to take that internal control letter as a recommendation. It's a good thing. We're doing our job versus a negative that we're trying to make you look bad. We're trying to make you better, just like the management companies and the attorneys are trying to do. We're trying to make you a better community. So I want to I want to touch on audits, okay? And you know, you and I have worked together a lot with new communities. So when a community is transitioning away from developer control, one of the things we as council advise the new board is, hey, you need to do two things. One, you need to get an engineering report to make sure that the um, that the building and all of the amenities that were promised to be built a certain way are actually defect designed uh, for you know design defect free. And the other thing you need to do is get your own independent financial audit performed from inception of the association up through and including date of transition to be sure that the developer has met his or her, uh, all of their financial obligations to the association, that the capital contribution funds were, were uh, correctly applied, that if there is a maintenance guarantee or deficit funding in place, that the those obligations were, were honored, uh, that reserves were, were waived only in accordance with the statute and all that good stuff. Um, so the, I want you to just sort of walk through what you do with a brand new community in terms of that audit and what are you looking for? 
Absolutely. And it, it last year made it even more busy. Florida is real estate is booming. The amount of turnovers we're doing right now is is astronomical compared to the last couple of years. But the first thing I bring up to my boards, I get a lot of calls that they're going through transition and the developer has hired the turnover auditor. So the first thing I'd like the boards to know is there's nothing wrong with the developer hiring the turnover auditor. The auditor has to be independent. They can have they can have no relationship with the developer. They can't have any interest in the firm. So as l- they have to know that they're definitely independent. The auditing firm, regardless, the developer hires them. The next thing is once the turnover audit is completed by the auditor, first thing I would look at is who is the auditor? Does the auditing firm get peer reviewed? Are they in this industry? Do they know this industry? If they do, a lot of boards will hire an other firm to come in and review that turnover audit. And I think that's a good idea. They come in, they review what the other auditor did, they look at their work papers, they make sure everything is done properly. We did one, I guess about three years ago, we were doing a tur- we were reviewing a turnover audit. And the firm that was doing it, they're probably a very good firm. I just, they don't do this industry. They're really in other types of audits. So we found the association about $168,000 worth of money that was owed back to them. So I always say, make sure the firm knows this industry and have somebody else review it. Once it's reviewed, they'll come back to the new board and say, everything looks good, or there's it's called an agreed upon procedure. And they'll give a report to the board saying, these are the deficiencies, or does everything look good? Then the board would be comfortable moving forward that everything in the audit report is good on how we reported financially. And it happens a lot where there's a review of the prior turnover. How much does a typical audit cost? And and I'll bring this up because I just had a client recently say, you know, and it was it was a brand new association. And I had said, listen, get your independent audit because I agree with you. I think we've compared audits over the years. Only once has the developer's auditor said that the developer owed money where our own audit said they didn't. And I said, oh, this is unusual. The developer's audit's actually, that's, yeah, that's the exception, not the rule. But just as you said, normally what will happen is we'll we'll find some additional money. But this particular client, it was about a $6,000 audit fee. And we found out that they were actually owed more than $70,000. So, well, great return on investment. What's the typical audit cost? So it depends. If you're talking about a a turnover audit from date of inception to date of turnover, it depends on the amount of years. So if you're looking, I had one that we did eight years. They didn't turn over for eight years. You could be looking anywhere from 30 to 35,000. If it's two or three years, you could be looking anywhere from six to 12,000. It all depends on the revenues, the reserves, the number of years that you're doing. Now, review of a turnover audit where you're just reviewing it. Uh, where they did the turnover, you could be talking a few thousand dollars. It's not going to be the same cost as an audit because you're not doing every audit procedure. So it really depends on the size of the association and the amount of years that you're doing. Yeah. But again, more often than not, I also think this draws a line in the sand for your community that you've taken that the newly transitioned board, the board that is now, now represented by the owners, not the developer has taken these steps to ensure that all of their rights and you know all of their rights and remedies are preserved. You know, I agree the- and it's it, you're setting another set of eyes outside of 
who they, the developer hired to do the turnover audit. But it, that second set of eyes gives comfort to the community, also to the board. I would feel more comfortable. I hired somebody to review that. Then I could go back to my owners and say, I've done all my due diligence. I've gone to the level that I should have as a board member, and I feel comfortable moving forward. So I'm, I'm going to geek out a little bit here with you. And I've really always wondered this, your little notes in your audited financial statements. <laughs> What's the amount of, first of all, how, what's the most you've ever done? You know, is it, is it typical to have dozens and dozens of notes? I always look, I think lay people look at those notes like, uh oh, there's something troubling or complicated <laughs> here. We're going to, we're going to put this little note here. Explain the notes to me. Sure, absolutely. So footnotes are based on materiality. Everything on your balance sheet should have a footnote for your cash position, your accounts receivable, if there's delinquencies, um, if you're financing your insurance, prepaid assessments, if you have a loan on the books, anything that's material to the financial statements. The reason I use the word materiality, and most people do not like that word, you talk to a board and say, well, that's not material. They don't want to hear that especially in this industry. So you're you're footnoting anything that's material that a unit owner should be aware of. Litigation, very important that if there's any litigation going on, a unit owner should be aware of that or somebody, a prospective buyer should be aware of that. Are there loans on the books? What's the interest rate? How long is that? And special assessments. Key to a footnote is special assessments. Is what is still ongoing? Are you allowing a payment plan? And then also the reserves. Reserves are actually required under the statutes. There's actually specific wording you have to put in those footnotes. And I'm glad it's in there because especially if they're a community that's waiving reserves, they should know that there's a potential special assessment. Did they have an engineering report or a reserve study? If they haven't, who put those estimated replacement costs together? The board. And it should be known to the owner. So if they say, well, we had a reserve study, so those numbers are pretty good, the estimates. The board did it. I'm a little concerned we're going to be hitting with a special assessment. Those estimates are probably not accurate. So folks, read the footnotes. Yes. This is important. <laughs> the footnote that the details are in the footnotes. So Nicole, I served on my own homeowners association board for two years. It was, God bless I, like, you. I know I say it was the longest two years of my life because I did this during the day and then at night, you know, and, and by the way, in my homeowners association, we were self-managed. We still are. We have been from inception. It's, it's fewer than a hundred homes. But we okay. all had homework. I was the legal liaison, so I had the legal uh, homework to do. But we we had an outside bookkeeper. But let's say we I was on the board, and I'm looking to I'm, I'm interviewing accounting firms. Okay, what are some red flags that I should look out for during that interview? If you know, if you could walk me through that, what sure. should I what should I be looking for in terms of what the what the accounting firm is is telling me and offering me? And are there any red flags that I should know about? That's a, they're really good questions because you should be, when you interview them, you should be asking the questions. First thing is you should get an understanding of the bookkeeping firm. Do they know Florida statutes? Do they understand the Florida statutes in regards to you must be on accrual based accounting? You can't be on cash basis. Do they know the difference between cash and accrual? If they don't even know that, I wouldn't even continue going further because they have to know that. Do they have a CPA on staff? A lot of the bookkeeping firms and the management companies have CPAs that are on staff. So really knowing true bookkeeping and understanding the financials and then getting an understanding of the management company, how the management company, the managers work with the bookkeepers. If they're using a altogether management company and bookkeepers, if you're using just a separate bookkeeping firm, they really don't have to know the management side of it. 
but understanding who owns the company, understanding your bookkeeper, what's her background? Is she a full charge bookkeeper or was she truly just a receptionist that was promoted to doing cash basis bookkeeping? Knowing the coding, who's going to be doing the coding? Do they understand what program? Are you in TOPS? Are you in GenArc? Do they know those programs in and out? When there's a mistake, they can correct it. Do they know adjusting entries? So many bookkeepers in this industry don't even understand adjusting entries. That's basic 101 in accounting. So asking those kind of questions to make sure they are getting the full advantage of a full charge bookkeeper. What you just laid out there, that little checklist is so valuable. I'm actually going to save this (laughs) and write it down later because I like it so much. So I did want to ask you about technology. You know, we've seen tremendous benefits for communities who embrace the use of technology when it comes to online voting and digitizing records for document inspection requests, as well as using emergency text for hurricane preparation and recovery. So what kind of technological advances has the accounting industry brought to bear in the community association context in recent years? So that's a, that's a really good question about the technology. So the first thing is many of our associations prior to last year were not up on technology. We had numerous times, part of our audit procedures are to look at their, you know, IT, how things work, their firewalls, all of that. And are they paperless? Are they going to the electronic voting And so many have been so hesitant. And I think because some of our board members are, you know, some of them are in the older generation. They like the paper form. But last year, that really changed. Many of my associations now are moving to the electronic voting. They're going to start looking into it, the paperless. Even on our side, we prior to two years ago, we went to full cloud. We made the decision to go to being paperless, having our server located at other places, everything being scanned in. It was the best decision we ever made. Um, Thank God, especially through COVID. But what people are realizing that now with people working at home, board members now can do things electronically. They can sign checks by being up at their home in Massachusetts. They don't have to physically be there. Zoom meetings. People are realizing we can do meetings through Zoom. It cuts back on their travel. They don't have to worry about being in person with people. The managers can do their job with always not having to be interrupted. Somebody coming through the door, not being able to do their job. I think technology has made us so much more efficient in this industry, even from an accounting perspective. This year, we were able to do so much of our audits just being able to be in the office because so many people are paperless. And I think people are loving it. I think they're loving the new way of the world. I don't think last March we would have had people saying that. People were scared and they were like, how are we going to function? But I think it's actually functioning better from an HOA and condominium side. I know they're loving the mute button on the board. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can tell you two, two, two things. One, they've reduced um, legal fees because in the past there's travel time. I mean, when we go out to, Correct. depending on where they're located as attorneys, we charge for our time. So now I can, you know, hop on a Zoom and there's not the hour back and forth ride. But I joke about the mute button, but I can tell you, Nicole, Really, I think I've 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 attended over well over a hundred board membership meetings since the pandemic began, and I've only had one or two where people where there's been you know disruptive conduct and mute. It's been a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful thing as that opposed is, to the past. That is so interesting because I've done a lot of meetings too, and I've noticed that the meetings are shorter. People are less likely to speak up 
it's interesting because the Zoom has cut down. People said the meetings have gotten better. And that's funny about the mute. I haven't seen that yet, but that's very interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, in the, in the past, if I had a, a problem in the community, we had to have a sergeant at arms. You know, the community right. would hire an off-duty police officer to stand in the room. And it's, listen, it's, it's a little awkward when you have to Absolutely. physically escort somebody out as opposed to you're going back to the waiting room. It's a little bit like a, a timeout for adults, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great but it does it's much more efficient and i think people are liking it i do well so i just have two more questions for you one's personal one's professional we'll start with the professional how do you maintain a close relationship with your clients so i know as an as an accountant you're gonna you're gonna pop in for most of them towards the the uh at the but at the budgeting stage and then at the financial statement stage but how do you maintain a close relationship throughout the year that's really good. And it's interesting because we do about 700 associations. And one of the things that many of our clients have told us is your communication and your ability to be there 24 seven. And I am always, we don't just have clients that call us in March, you know, February, we're with them all year round. They're able to call us anytime. It can be last, last week, I got a call at 1230 in the morning. Um, I was up. I answered the phone. They were like, we have a meeting tomorrow. We have a question. Wait, did you, like, say did you say 4.30? 12.30 in the morning. <laughs> but I do take pride in the sense that my email and my cell phone is always on and they will always get a reply. There is never a waiting time to get back to someone. And I feel that everybody, that might not be an emergency to me, but it's an emergency to them. And I feel you need to be available to your clients because they are what keep us successful and getting them to be able to stay in the best position they are as board members to be able to answer those questions. So I think that's what sets us aside in the sense that I stay in contact with my clients all year round. I mean, I was telling, uh, I think it's your assistant earlier that I get probably three to 4,000 emails a day and every single one of them gets replied to. <laughs> wow. You're setting, uh, the bar, you're setting the bar very, very high, but you're definitely an inspiration. But you're right about accessibility. And, you know, when I was a young attorney, that was something that one of my legal mentors once said to me, which was, Donna, you know, that board member may be a, 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 a teacher and she stepped out during a break to call. And that may be the only time that that client has to speak to you. So you have to. And it's something I pass on to young associates in the firm right now, too, which is, yeah, you may be in the midst of doing something when that call comes in, but you got to break away and you got to take that call. Yes. It's so and that's important why because your clients feel valued. They they understand that you're taking the time. They can tell whether or not you're really paying attention and you're and you're being there for them. And that's why you too, you, you're set aside. So many people talk about you in such a positive light because you are that way. You give such great information to your clients and people want that and they want to feel important. And they are, they're a client. They should feel important. Absolutely. So last question, you're, you're running this major accounting firm. You have two beautiful young children. How do you do it all? How do you balance it? <laughs> I, have I don't a know. Lot of maybe you maybe you sleep three hours a night, <laughs> yeah. and you still look and you still look well anything. rested. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to sleep much, but I have a great husband. He is exceptional in helping me and everything. And I have to say, I have one of the best staff. If I didn't have the people behind me, we would never be as successful. Everybody together is a team. We help each other no matter what it takes, and I think that's what makes a successful firm is that you all work together. And it's been wonderful. 
my kids are great. They just thank God I have my husband to help out during tax season. (laughs) You're an inspiration. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review so even more people can take it to the board. Lastly, please visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more information.